Okay, we are in Isaiah 7 and 9. And I know your uh, bulletin says we'll go through verse 20 something or other, but I cut it. So we're only going uh, chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. And then chapter 9, verse 6. And we're going to look at those passages today. So if you would turn there, that would be great. Listen carefully to the prophet Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And then chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for making us your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you that this Christmas your word points us to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Focus us this day on your word and on your Son. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. During Advent, we're going to be spending this season looking at some of the prophecies concerning Jesus that come to us from the prophet Isaiah. And then in January, we're going to start a new series on the most misused and misunderstood verses of the Bible. So, a topical series. Who knew? Um, and that's going to carry us actually to the end of May, about 20 weeks looking at 20 verses that are commonly misunderstood, misused, totally screwed up, and we're going to fix them all. <laughs> so, no, we're try to interpret them correctly. Um, but for today, I want to look at what's really the most controversial of Isaiah's prophecies, and it's specific to Isaiah 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Have you ever stopped for just a moment to ponder the majesty of the word Emmanuel? First of all, as a few of you have already asked, how do you spell it? Is it spelled with an I, as we see here in our text? Or is it spelled with an E, as in Emmanuel Presbyterian Church in Arlington? So which is it? Is it spelled with an I or an E? And the answer is yes. 
Simply put, Emmanuel with an I comes to us from the Hebrew, and Emmanuel with an E comes to us from the Greek. But they're both correct. And for the sake of clarity, the English Standard Version, one we normally use, always uses Emmanuel with an I. However, you still have to deal with it, primarily because of the great Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has Emmanuel with an E. We'll be singing that later on. So back to my original question, have you ever stopped for a moment to ponder the majesty of the word Emmanuel? It's somewhat incredible to consider that Isaiah, at that time the holiest man in Israel, was predicting that in the future, the one who spoke the limitless galaxies into existence would dwell among us. In fact, that's what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. So as we continue our journey through Advent towards Christmas Day, let's take some time to consider the context of two of these best-known Old Testament prophecies. And to do that, we have to ask a couple of questions. And the first question we have to ask uh, is, what did Emmanuel mean to Isaiah? What did Emmanuel mean to Isaiah? To understand the context of this famous prophecy, we should really read the whole chapter, if not the whole book of Isaiah. But this morning, we're just going to look at the verses around it, starting again at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He's the other main character in this text. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. So this is the Lord speaking through Isaiah to King Ahaz. And the Lord says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. That's important. The Lord is telling him what to do. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put God to the test. And that sounds noble at first. But it's God who told them to ask. No thanks, God. I got this. That's pretty much what he's saying here. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's the dividing of the kingdom and the king of Assyria. Now, if you can remember all the way back to when we went through Daniel and Revelation, two other major prophetic books, I'm going to guess that was around 09. So it's been a few years. But for those of you that were here back then, we learned that most prophecies have a near-term present fulfillment 
and a far-term future fulfillment. So in our passage for this morning, in context, Isaiah foresees impending doom looming on the horizon. That's the near-term fulfillment. But he also foresees the coming Messiah who would ultimately deliver God's people from their sins. And that's the far-term fulfillment. So we want to look at the near-term fulfillment first. In our reading from Isaiah 7, Isaiah is speaking to the king of Judah, King Ahaz. Ahaz is a bad guy. Ahaz is an evil man. Ahaz is a man who sacrificed his own children to false gods. So you know the character of the man we're dealing with here. And by the time we come to chapter 7, it's about 735 B.C. And the crisis of Isaiah's generation is exploding onto the scene. After the death of the good king Solomon, the ten Israelite tribes, often called Ephraim, in the northern part of the country seceded and formed their own state. And they named it Israel. And the Bible calls the breakaway kingdom Israel. Their capital city was Samaria. Only two tribes in the south remained loyal to the dynasty of the house of David in Jerusalem. Most of the nation has split off to go its own way. And at this time, the Assyrian Empire was the superpower of the day, increasing in influence and power. And because of this sort of looming empire of Assyria, the smaller nations of Syria, the regular Syria, and Israel, which is the northern kingdom composed of ten Hebrew tribes, want to form a coalition with Judah, now the southern kingdom, two Hebrew tribes, and get everybody together to oppose this Assyrian empire. That's sort of the background story of what's going on. So they come to King Ahaz, the king of Judah, and say, we need to get together and stand against the Assyrian Empire. And we learn Ahaz can't make a decision. It just sort of runs counter to his life. And he wavers. And he vacillates. And he goes back and forth. And he doesn't know what to do. And because of his hesitation... Syria and Israel turn against him. They decide they're going to punish him for being so indecisive. And they're going to remove him and put another king on the throne who will do what they want. And so now hearing that he not only has to worry about the Assyrian Empire, but he has to worry about the nations of Israel and Syria, and Ahaz is scared. He's literally trembling in his boots. And so they send Isaiah the prophet to calm him down. Give him a message of comfort. And that's what he does here in Isaiah 7. At the very, begin, big, very beginning of Isaiah 7, verse 1, Isaiah tells him the enemy cannot mount an attack against Jerusalem. It says there, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, 
Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. The prophet wants Ahaz to know right from the start, this threat is going to vanish. There is no need to panic. God is with his people. And so Isaiah says to Ahaz, essentially, look, if you'll only trust in God, Ahaz, if you would only put your faith in God and give everything into his hands, you're going to be all right. And God's going to look after you. He's going to take care of you. And Ahaz doesn't believe it. He doesn't want to believe it. Apparently, he prefers constant worry and utter dismay. He feels better frantically devising plans for his own salvation rather than delighting in the victory of God. And his heart is hard. And that's the setting, this defining crisis. War on the steps of Jerusalem. It's inflated in its emotional impact because their hearts are not filled with God, no sense of God, no sense of the glory of God. And everybody's just standing around saying, oh no, what are we going to do? Inevitably, if you struggle with trusting God, and most people do from time to time, God brings you into crisis. Sooner or later, this question poses, presses itself in upon us. If I put my trust in God, will he save me? Will he be true to his promises in the gospel when it really counts for me? And our answer to that question will either be like Ahaz, where you have an agonizing back-and-forth struggle, I don't know, and I can't make up my mind, I can't make a decision, which has the same end result as saying no, or our answer will be a clear yes. And the larger point that Isaiah is making is that God's people don't trust him as they should, and when they don't trust him, they pay a price for it. But his grace will have the last word on their behalf. There will be a triumph of God's grace over their failure. So Isaiah commanded Ahaz. Isaiah the prophet commanded the king. Test God. Actually ask God to prove this message that he's bringing, to confirm it with a sign. And Ahaz, actually in his pride and in his stubbornness, refuses. And he goes his own way. He trusts in his own wisdom and decided it would be better to trust men. And so he goes and makes a covenant, a treaty, with the king of Assyria. He's worried about the two little kingdoms, Syria and Israel, attacking him. But the real worry is the Assyrians who are going to attack everybody. And he says, I'm going to go to that guy. The Assyrians were the enemies of the whole of the ancient Near East. They had no friends, 
all the rest of all the other nations, all the other peoples were enemies. And that's who Ahaz trusts. How do you think that works out? Not well. Ahaz, as we would say today, ended up with egg on his face. So Isaiah announces to Ahaz in verse 14 what would happen, that if he only trusted in God, if he only put his faith in God, God would send a sign, and that sign would be a baby. And that child would be called Emmanuel. And Ahaz is given his name even before the child is born or even conceived. And if Ahaz would wait, and if Ahaz would have faith, then the age when that child could discern right from wrong, then all the bother, all the pressure, all the threat, all the onslaught from all the other nations would all pass away and all would be at peace. But King Ahaz refuses. He refuses to listen to the voice of God through the prophet Isaiah. And despite that lack of faith, and listen, because this part is beautiful, God did not withdraw his promise because of the king's unfaithfulness. God was faithful to the remainder of those people in the nation of Judah who were faithful to him. And he said, I'm going to send this child. I'm going to send this baby. Whether Ahaz fails me or not, a virgin will conceive, this child will be born, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Think about that. God is saying, Ahaz, let me tell you that I will fulfill my promise to David from 2 Samuel 7 to set his son on the throne in Jerusalem even if I have to raise up a descendant of David who is conceived by a virgin to put him on the throne. I will raise up the son of David and he will reign on the throne of his fathers. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis stories. There's a lot of favorite C.S. Lewis stories. But one of them is he tells of a time when one of his atheist colleagues came by to visit him at Christmas. And his window was cracked open and there were carolers outside singing Christmas carols. And they happened to be singing one about the virgin birth. And at that point, his colleague said to him, isn't it good that we know that virgins don't have children? And C.S. Lewis sort of spun his chair around and looked at him and said, don't you think they knew that virgins don't have children? I mean, that's the point, isn't it? The very entry of this child into the world is a testimony to the miraculous and the supernatural. I love that. I just imagine C.S. Lewis. That's the point. I just want to like slap him, but not allowed to do that. But in all the trial and tribulation and pressure that the nation of Israel faced, even though their king betrayed him, even though their king buckled under the pressure of anxious men and kings and politicians, God remained with his people. That's what Emmanuel meant to Isaiah. Divine hope, divine grace, divine faithfulness in the midst of man's failure. Which brings us to the second question of the morning. Which is, what does Emmanuel mean to you? 
What does Emmanuel mean to you? We know what it meant back then, the near-term fulfillment, but what does it mean to you today in the far-term fulfillment? For that, we turn to Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can almost hear the music starting. You know, back in Isaiah 7, we read the birth of Jesus would be a sign. And we find perfect harmony with that prophecy when the angels announced the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The other night, Joanne and I got to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas special. We watch it every year. It's really old. It's very corny. I love it. When I was in third grade, I was in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and I was Linus. So I got to say these lines, where Linus comes out on the stage. He drops the blanket. He comes out and delivers these lines. Then he goes back and picks the blanket up and says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And what he says is, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. God has always used signs to get our attention and deliver his message to his people. And in the birth of Christ, we have a sign from God. But what is the birth of Jesus a sign of? Well, a multitude of things. But at a minimum, it's a sign of God's wisdom. A sign of God's wisdom. We start with the first title that Isaiah gave him, Wonderful Counselor. Literally, this title means a wonder of a counselor. It speaks of the wisdom of his plan. Now, the word wonderful in Hebrew is about as close as you can get to ascribing deity because he's the one who elicits wonder. He's the one who elicits awe. And he elicits wonder and awe through the way that he counsels because he understands your condition. He really does. He understands what your needs are this morning. He understands the deepest recesses of your psyche. There's no situation. There's no context. There's no pain. There's no hurt. There's no problem. There's no difficulty that he doesn't understand. And he's able to give words of wisdom and words of encouragement and words of strength and words of comfort and he's able to reach down into the depths of that problem and give help and support and relief and a peace that passes all understanding. He's a wonderful counselor. Think of how the New Testament describes this kind of divine wisdom, uh, this wondrous heavenly wisdom, to Jesus. God made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 
It says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And then Colossians 2, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And even Isaiah will tell us, Isaiah 53, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. <coughs> and he shall bear their iniquities. <coughs> I am on a whole ton of decongestants for my ear, which is backfiring for my voice. So we're just going to try to get through it. They are not working for my ear, but they're apparently working fine on my voice. <clears throat> he is a perfect teacher. He is the ultimate counselor. And that gives us insight into his working. His plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. He'll accomplish things beyond human comprehension. And he'll do it in ways that we don't understand, that we can't even fathom. He's going to do the greatest work ever accomplished. And he's going to do it successfully. And uh, you just think about that work on the cross. A violent death is not man's way to success. If you go out and buy a book on how to be successful, and there's a lot of them. None of them tell you to go die. They tell you to dress for success. They tell you how to act with your boss. They tell you what sort of things you can do to manipulate your situation so you can get ahead of the other guy. No crosses in any of those books. But it's God's plan and our Lord carries it out perfectly. So that's the first attribute. Wonderful counselor. Who's he being contrasted with? Ahaz, the unwise earthly king who have led God's people into peril and destruction. This child will lead them in wisdom and counsel and it will be wonderful. That's the first sign. Second sign is a sign of God's power. Comes from the second title, Mighty God. Speaks of the power of accomplishment. Also a statement of deity. The baby born in the manger is not just the Son of God. He's also God the Son. All the fullness of God dwells in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the ancient creeds declare, he is very God of very God. That can never be said of any other human baby. And there's something else very important in this title. This word translated mighty is the word gabor. It means strong one or powerful, valiant warrior. The term mighty god, El Gabor, is actually a military title. He's the god who fights for his people. God's answer to everything that has terrorized us 
is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a child. His answer to all of the bullies swaggering throughout all of history is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. At the incarnation, God took on the form of human flesh. That's why he is Emmanuel, God with us. And we take those first two titles, and what do you have? Wonderful counselor, he makes the plans. Mighty God, he makes the plans work. All of his wonderful plans will be carried out with all of God's infinite might. There in this little baby, all the strength of deity. The power of God is in those tiny fists. The omnipotence of God is at his commands. What he desires, he is able to achieve. When we meet Jesus, we meet God. If he's not the mighty God, then we're deceived and deluded, and it's blasphemy to worship him. There is no middle ground. If he is not God, then we're fools to worship him. If he is God, we're fools not to. If Jesus is nothing but a man, then all we do at Christmas is in vain. And at this point, it's, remember that, it's important to remember that we not give in to all of the sentimental nonsense that makes Christmas this sort of feel-good ecumenical holiday. Christmas is the great dividing line of the human race. No wonder people want all mention of Christmas to be expunged from public life. They understand Christmas is based on the belief that at Bethlehem, God incarnate was born. And if that's not true, we're not only wasting our time this morning, we are actually deluded and deceived and are of all men most to be pitied. But if he is the mighty God, then when we rely on him, we are relying on God himself. He is the mighty God for us because we need divine wisdom and divine power to help us in our battle. Satan and sin would defeat us every day, but he is the mighty God who has already defeated them. The incarnation of Christ is more than a sign of God's power, and it's more than a sign of God's wisdom. It is also a sign of God's love. It comes from the third title, Everlasting Father. In the Hebrew, this phrase is literally the Father of Eternity. It speaks of the purpose of His coming. He is before, above, and beyond time. He's the possessor of eternity. He is eternally like a father to His people. This is not a statement about the Trinity, but a statement about the character of our Lord. All that a good father is, Jesus is to His people. And because he's like a father, he cares for his people. Because he owns eternity, he can give us eternal life. That's so important for all of those who live of us who live on this sin-cursed planet. No one lives forever. Sooner or later, we'll all find our own name in the graveyard. We're here today, gone tomorrow. A dead Christ does us no good. Dying men need an undying Christ. And in this tiny baby, we see the love of God sleeping in a stable. 
Wisdom, power, love, and then finally peace, the sign of God's peace. comes from the last title that Isaiah gave him, Prince of Peace. Phrase means the prince whose coming brings peace, speaks of the effect of his coming. This final title is the climax of all that's gone before. The word prince is literally the son of the sovereign. It speaks of his high position. And the word peace speaks of his basic nature. You know, I've said this, I tried to go back and look, but, you know, not only did my phone die uh, this week, and I, so I'm without a phone, so if you called me, I wasn't being intentionally rude. I guess I was being unintentionally rude because um, I didn't take it. Uh, but my computer died two weeks ago, so it was really hard to sort of look stuff up, and I just got it back. But if memory serves, it doesn't usually. Um, three times I've said something to this effect that I looked up uh, how many wars are going on, how many conflicts are going on in the world, and there's more going on right now than at any other time in history. And I said that like five years ago, and I said that like 12 years ago. All over the globe, there's ethnic conflicts and tribal wars closer to home. Not a day goes by without word that somebody else has been murdered in metropolitan Washington. We see so much killing that it doesn't even surprise us anymore. It doesn't even bother us. We've become immune to violence because we live in a violent world. And Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that God's plan for world peace is focused on one person, a baby asleep in a manger in Bethlehem. He is the ultimate man of peace. In the past, his coming made peace with God. In the present, those who come to him find peace when Christ enters. In the future, his coming again will usher in a kingdom of peace. There is no peace today in our world. But he is not a failure. We are. The ideal has not yet come. Peace is a wonderful thing, but hard to find in this life. It's worth working for and waiting for. And God's ultimate plan for peace rests not in treaties or lessons or progress or material prosperity. God's plan for peace is the maker of peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And Jesus himself promised to bring peace. John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then again in Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is no warrior, no greedy conqueror, no empire builder. He came to bring peace. He did, he does, he will. In this tiny baby, we see the peace of God welcomed by angels and shepherds. In this one verse, you have four titles of Jesus. It's what they mean to us today. If you're confused, he's the wonderful counselor. If you're weak, he's the mighty God. If you're lonely, he's the everlasting Father. And if you're scared, he's the Prince of Peace. You know, back in 1809, 
you probably don't remember that year. But there was a traveler passing through Kentucky, and I stopped at his store. And he asked, anything happened around here lately? And I said, no, nothing ever happens around here. There was a baby born out at the Lincoln cabin last night. That's all. Just a baby at the Lincoln cabin. They named him Abraham. You never know what may happen in the world because a baby was born. Even Mary couldn't fully imagine what all of that meant that night. But the baby born in Bethlehem has become the centerpiece of human history. We even divide time by his coming, B.C. and A.D. Modern scholars don't like those terms, so they've changed them to B.C.E. and C.E., common error and before common error, but they divide it at the exact same place. <clears throat> Ravi Zacharias, in an article that he wrote, Questions I Would Like to Ask God, writes that I have often referenced a quote by the talk show host Larry King and his response to a particular question, which was, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? And Larry King's answer was he would like to interview Jesus. And the questioner followed with, and what would you ask him? And Larry King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born. The answer to that question would define history for me. And Ravi Zacharias said when he wrote to him to request permission to a friend to quote him, Larry King sent back word and said, tell him I was not being facetious. The virgin birth of Christ is a key doctrine. For if Jesus Christ is not God come in sinless human flesh, we have no Savior. Jesus had to be born of a virgin apart from having a human father because he existed before his mother. He was not just born in this world, he came down from heaven into this world. Jesus was sent by the Father and therefore came into the world having a human mother but not a human father. It's an amazing truth about the Christian story of Jesus' conception and birth. God is literally with us in the person of Jesus. This is where Christianity diverges from all other world religions. Most religions believe in a God that's the supreme being in the universe. Most people have some level of agreement with that. The atheists don't like all 12 of them. But the miracle of Jesus' birth and what is central to the Christian faith is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Why would God do such a thing? Why did God come to earth to demonstrate his love for us, to let us know that he cares about us so much he would sacrifice and come to the earth as a lowly human being and die for us? There's a famous picture in Milan, Italy, of an angel and an angel who is feeling one of the points of the crown of thorns with his finger. And there's a look of wonder and amazement upon his face. And he's told that it means agony. It means pain. But he cannot feel it. 
To him, it's incomprehensible because he belongs to a different world. He belongs to a world that's never experienced personal pain. He was never born into the condition in which the Son of Man was born, where there's sin and there's suffering and there's sacrifice. The Apostle Paul tells us the story from the viewpoint of Christ in Philippians 2. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The great Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce said it so well when he wrote, Jesus endured a human birth to give us a new spiritual birth. He occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion. He had an earthly mother so we might have a heavenly father. He became subject so that we might be free. He left his glory to give us glory. He was poor that we might be rich. He was welcomed by shepherds at his birth, whereas at our birth we're welcomed by angels. He was hunted by Herod, that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan. It is the great paradox of the Christmas story. It is that which makes it irresistibly attractive. It is the reversal of roles at God's cost for our benefit. Emmanuel is God with us. And God did not send an angel, he sent his son. And he took upon himself our flesh that he might suffer, that when we suffer, he might know what we go through. He might empathize, he might comfort, he might help us. That is God's promise to us today. Emmanuel, God with us. Wherever we are, he is there with us. God is with you all the time. He is Emmanuel. It means you can never be alone. Whatever your need is, let this word sink into your heart and into your mind. Emmanuel, God with us. Is he with you? Is he your Emmanuel? Look at him. He's a wonderful counselor. He has the best ideas and plans. Let's follow him. He is the mighty God. He defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting Father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. And as the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we were still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion because Advent is the promise of his birth. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Thank you that you always speak to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior, and that we might know Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that you're the King. Thank you that we have the promise of your birth. Grant us the grace of faith. Grant that we would believe, we would believe in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the Son of David, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy as Emmanuel, God with us, the one born of a virgin, the one born to sit on his father, father's, David's throne. And not just for a little while, but forever. Thank you that you're a wonderful counselor, to us who are in such great need of the whole counsel of God. Thank you that you're a mighty God to us 
who are in such great need of your power since we're filled with such overwhelming weakness. Thank you that you're the everlasting Father to us who so desperately need to be loved despite being so unlovable. And thank you that you're the Prince of Peace, the Son of the Sovereign, who makes peace with God for us by the blood of the cross. Most of all, help us to embrace that remarkable wisdom that was revealed to us in the gospel and began on Christmas Day. Lord, we thank you that Advent is the proper time. We thank you that your kingdom will never end. And we thank you this Advent in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next week.